When pandemics hit in the past, we put sick individuals in the quarantine. But when the current pandemic hit, we shut down the entire society, including the entire economy. I suspect that the shutdown was a mistake, uh, especially uh, the prolonged shutdown was a mistake due to its uh, astronomical, economic, psychological and uh, non-COVID related deaths. But I could be wrong. And to set me straight, I am happy to welcome to the COVID tonic Michael McCulloch, a professor of uh, psychology at the University of California in San Diego and the author of a new book, The Kindness of Strangers, How a Selfish Ape Invented a New Moral Code. So, Michael, welcome. Thanks for having me, Marian. My absolute pleasure. Um, we will turn to your book in a moment, but let's start uh, with a theory that I heard about the shutdown. And it goes something like this. Uh, humans, especially people who've been living in Western societies, have been moving away from death. Whereas our ancestors were surrounded by death all the time. People were dying left and right, there was violence, there was malnutrition, there was disease. Um, we don't really encounter death until our parents or our grandparents die. So everything in our society is intended to postpone individual death. And the shutdown is the attempt to postpone uh, death on a very large scale. That's, at any rate, a theory that I recently heard. Do you buy it? I, I do buy it, actually. I, I think one of the things that you know has interested me uh, as I've sort of tried to understand a little bit of the evolution of our concern for strangers over the past you know few millennia is uh, I'm sort of borrowing from. <laughs> A, a uh, an insight from the psycho uh, the psychiatrist Viktor Frankl, who pointed out that suffering is a bit like a gas in a container. It, it spreads out evenly and sort of affects the soul in the same ways, no matter how much of it is there is. So pain kind of, you know, it just sort of has a way of you know taking up our entire consciousness when we're experiencing it. I think our tolerance for other people's suffering and death is kind of similar. And it's a function of, um, you know, uh, uh, we can only experience so much sympathy or compassion. So the question is how, how much of it can we spread sort of per individual person suffering? So I think when we faced extremely high death rates or when we undergo a, a war that has, you know, millions of, of casualties, I think we're actually, and, and we, we, we're outraged by that, or we, we, we were sympathetic toward the people suffering. It seems to me through history that um, we've become less and less tolerant of, of, of death and violence, in, in part because of this idea that the, the amount of suffering we, we experience or the amount of compassion we experience is sort of equal, um, no matter how many people are in the background doing that. So. When there were millions of people, um, we were sort of, you know, in, in, the, in a given epidemic or a given uh, war or other mass, you know, sort of instance of mass suffering. We, we were compassionate about it and desired to do something about it and, and sort of because of the same psychological preferences, emotions we have now. But with so much of it, we had to kind of take a fatalistic attitude. You know, there's, there's no way you're going to save, uh, you know, uh, 
18 million people from, uh, you know, the Spanish flu. Uh, but when we're talking or, you, you know, you're going to save 100,000 people from at being war casualties. But as the number of war casualties shrink in, you know, modern warfare, or as we get a better and better handle on how to how to handle epide uh, epidemics rationally and, and with, you know, and, and with an eye toward results, we we're still concerned about the amount of death, even if it's only a tenth or five percent or two percent of what it would have been uh, 100 years ago. So, yeah, I think we've become less and less tolerant of of, you know, outrageous suffering. And uh, as there's less and less of it, we continue to say sort of direct the same amount of attention to it that we, we would have directed to, uh, you know, an instance of mass suffering 100 or 1000 years ago. Mm -hmm. So let me just pursue this point a little bit. So uh, you think that we were always concerned about human suffering. It's just that now we can do more about it. You don't think that humans went through some sort of a genetic or um, 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 ethical evolution that would make us more, um, uh, more frightened of death. I, I, I do realize, of course, that your book is about an ethical um, evolution of the species toward greater compassion, but I just want to focus on the toleration of death. Has there been any change or uh, is it really the same amount of energy that we apply toward prevention of death? Yeah, well, great. Yes. What we have in our power in our power now that we didn't have in ages past is the actual capacity to intervene. So uh, 500 years ago, classic classical Europe, um, our options for actually intervening were pretty, you know, certainly for intervening effectively were very limited. The things we knew how to do to um, uh, conduct uh, population-wide surveillance to figure out why people are dying, how many people are dying, where they're dying. We just didn't have that technology. So, um, and because of our worldviews, which were largely at that time, you know, heavily driven by uh, Christian belief, Christian conviction, um, we uh, were, uh, suffering and death were accepted and uh, in some ways even sanctified <clears throat> as, as a way of better understanding God's mercy. Um, we, we ended up, because we didn't have effective ways to intervene, and we had worldviews that said there are some ways and you can get kind of a redemptive sort of meaning from other people's suffering. I think we did, we did have a kind of tolerance for it that we simply don't now that we've moved away from a sort of fatalistic attitude toward death. And also we know we have some tools in our toolkit for doing something about it. So our beliefs about death have changed for sure. And our abilities to control or reduce it have, have you know, vastly improved. So I do think uh, we're less tolerant for sure. That's fascinating. Uh, so in the past, um, people would have perhaps even welcome death because it brought them closer to God. They were finally in eternity in heaven. And as the society has secularized and more and more people doubt the existence of afterlife, really, uh, whether you make the best of it and remain on earth as long as you possibly can, that's that's really the key, right? Okay, that's, that's very interesting. Um, I didn't think of that. So um, can you describe how humanity has uh, perhaps tackled pandemics in the past, let's say uh, in Europe previously? You touched upon that subject already. Sure, yeah. 
pandemics have always been a part of, you know, the, you know, human life. Uh, we have immune systems as as proof that we've always been uh, preyed upon by um, these these tiny creatures that want to get into our bodies and turn our cellular machinery into factories for making more of them. So um, we've always confronted them. And as societies got very large, um, you know, when, as we moved into cities, uh, you know, large, dense cities, and certainly as we moved into, you know, ex extremely dense cities of, of Europe, um, you know, a thousand to 500 years ago, epidemics became uh, concerns for thousands of people, tens of thousands of people at a time, uh, and, and transmission could be very high. So, uh, you know, as, as, as I alluded to a, a couple minutes ago, uh, we sort of accepted epidemics as, uh, you know, a normal part of life. You obviously, we, we had some intuitions about transmission, um, the idea that you want to separate yourself from people who are infected. We, you know, that's, that's something we've known for a long time. But beginning in, uh, you know, I, I would say the 16th century, late 15th, uh, early 16th century, um, uh, thinking people, scholars, um, the human, humanists of the time, really began to ask themselves in a new way uh, how we should think about the, the, the you know, the, the vast uh, sort of reservoirs of, of, of humanity that are showing up at the city gates, uh, poor, cold, uh, without productive work, uh, in light of the fact that they, ha they, ha they are this vector for pandemic. We, we know that they, you know, that lots of unhealthy people with disease are spread, are super spreaders. And not only that, but um, they, th their, their inability to make a living for themselves creates all these second order problems, uh, social unrest, uh, town squares that you don't enjoy going to that, that bum you out because of all the poverty and disease, um, the, 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 the increases in crime, uh, the increases in vice as people try, try to find some way to make a living for themselves. And so in, in the beginnings of the 16th century, what you see in Europe is actually really interesting. Uh, starting uh, in the city of Bruges, you see the first systematic plans for um, uh, intervening systematically and society-wide in order to uh, improve the economic uh, uh, outlook of uh, st essentially strangers that you don't know, but that are in the city um, suffering and also creating all these second order problems. So that's where the, that's actually the first time where we see uh, secular plans uh, managed by the secular authorities within the city um, get, getting, uh, getting their day in court, as it were. Within about 25 years, 35 years of, of, of that period, you see this idea of comprehensive planning uh, involving assessment of individuals' uh, needs, uh, trying to find ways to uh, provide work training, um, whether that's through apprenticeships or um, uh, you know, increase, uh, more education. You see this basic idea and um, separating the idle you know, the idle poor from those individuals who really desire to be productive. Um, you see this idea spreading to the point where it's in 30 or 50 cities uh, throughout Europe within about half, half a century. 
So this was an idea that was really new. Um, prior to that, uh, concern for the poor was largely driven by a kind of fatalism, the idea that the poor will always be with us. Um, and, it, and charity was largely managed um, to, to it, I believe, to its great credit uh, by the church. Um, that really did make huge, huge efforts to care for the poor. Um, you, nevertheless, nevertheless, the the way the worldview changed was that it, we would be more effective and more efficient if we put all of these efforts kind of in a a a, a, a framework where we can compare apples with apples and uh, avoid duplication of effort and um, work to. Uh, do something comprehensive and more effective rather than uh, putting band-aids on problems and essentially creating poverty traps where we spend resources, but not enough that anybody can really get out of poverty. Was that some sort of an ethical change or did it arise from the increased wealth in Northwestern Europe at around this time? Yeah, um, I, I think those increases in wealth came uh, came slowly um, through, you know, through the beginnings of international trade, and we don't really see those increases in wealth. I, I believe on my on my reading of, of history, I don't I don't really see them making a huge dent on, until we get uh, a little bit later in the 16th century with the. Um, the innovation of poor rates, where this is this is something that started in England, um, uh, where uh, the the, um, the the government of the time decided to start taxing people on the basis of property and wealth in order to create a small fund to provide benefits to the poor, largely in the forms of of work training, uh, money to buy food. Um, some somehow limited expenses for housing and and so forth, and these uh, these amounted to about one percent of gross domestic income in uh, in England at the time. Similar innovations took place in the Netherlands a little later, and their actual uh, allocations were a little higher. Uh, but these increased to about two percent of GDP in both England and the Dutch Republic, um, and and were kind of kept at that level until uh, until they weren't and some some economic and uh, economic realities in both the Netherlands uh, the Dutch Republic and England changed so that those those rates were were cut as we as we move into the 19th century but yeah there's no doubt that this is on the back of increasing wealth increasing GDP um, so we we this is often called um, the the age of prevention at least that's what that's what I've come to call it um, um, and um, some other some some other economists uh, like that term as well. So in, well, for sure, well, I want to go to the age of prevention in a moment because uh, obviously I want to get a better sense of uh, the arg main arguments in your book. Um, and I promise that we will. But before we uh, get there, uh, just a couple more questions on uh, the current pandemic. Um, so since you are the specialist on on compassion, I wanted to ask you. Um, if you were surprised how quickly uh, the argument for keeping of the shutdown switched from, um, you know, let's shut down the economy for a couple of weeks so that we can get the healthcare system um, ready so that the healthcare system isn't overwhelmed, yeah. 
So that was the original argument. And then quickly it switched to an argument that uh, basically we need to keep the economy shut until COVID goes away or until the vaccine comes, uh, that sort of thing. What Were you surprised by that switch? And do you have any theory why that has occurred? I, I was really surprised by that. That was, that was certainly... Uh, my understanding was to to prevent us from outstripping uh, the medical system, uh, right. so that you know we would have enough beds and enough resources to take care of the people who who were really sick. But 